0: secret library of St John the Beheaded, here in London's St Giles Rookery, for this first episode of We're All Stories in the End, a new podcast about life, the universe, and the original Doctor Who novels published by Virgin Books and then the BBC Books between 1991 and 2005. In over 130 books, a new generation of fans breathed new life into the series and created some amazing new adventures for the Doctor and his companions before the TV show that spawned all this returned to our screens in March 2005 full of... writers and ideas nicked from these books. So join me, Ace, Bernice, Chris and Roz, Sam, Fitz, Angie, Compassion, Tricks, and everyone else as we explore this era of Doctor Who. My own story is, for the most part, quite dull. I just went to bookshops every month and bought the latest instalment of Doctor Who in novel form. But some people had a slightly more interesting route into the books. For example,
1: Liam. So, in effect, I blame Alan Yentab. Uh, Yentob did a series of repeat runs in the early 1990s, on a Friday night on BBC Two, uh, sandwiched between Gerry Anderson, Stingray, and the man from UNCLE. Uh, they had a series of shows from each Doctor Who. So I came into it a little bit late, I came in with the Demons. Um, so I had vivid memories of watching the Demons, and then I was really, really treated, you know. I had uh, Genesis of the Daleks, Androzani, Revelation of the Daleks, and Battlefield, and that was kind of my introduction to the wider sphere of the universe. So as this was kind of developing and developing, you know, as a child you're more interested in the latest thing, the newest thing. That was what kept you interested, kept your attention live and valid. So I did what any normal child would do, I sought out the knowledge of the great wide world by my school library. So I went down to the library, I harangued uh, the librarian who was this kind of slightly curmudgeonly figure called Mrs. Jump, a lady who looked like she was uh, kind of held together by sellotape and bitterness. But we digress. And so anyway, I asked Mrs. Jump and I said, have you got any of the Doctor Who stuff in? Now, Mrs. Jump was clearly a lady of the world, but she didn't look like she was the sort of person that was up on the work of Terence Dix. So she handed me uh, a couple of the Virgin New Adventures books, uh, one of them being Time Worm Genesis. Now, you can imagine uh, what that did for a uh, slightly libidinous young lad living in the outskirts of Dublin in the the later years of the 20th century. Nightshade, uh, which for me was an absolute revelation, you know, because... Uh, looking back as it did on uh, the the feature of nostalgia and the power of you know the past and uh, the highest science by Gareth Roberts, which introduced those uh, Chelonians, which is a race to this day. I'm surprised that they've not fully introduced into the series save a little Mention in the Pandarica opens So for me, you know that was my introduction to the range and and I found that those books kind of encompass the very best and the very worst uh, which leads us naturally into Transit by Beliranovic, one of my favourites of the writers of the Sylvester McCoy era. I was slightly crushed to see that this book was kind of uh, mainly uh, developing a predilection for variations of various swear words, and the weight of the the great ideas in it. You know the the interplanetary tube system and the the drones that patrolled it, and Cadet Hugh Lethbridge-Stewart. Some of those ideas were slightly ...crushed under a narrative that tried to be a little bit too all-encompassing for its own good. And I think Ben Aranovich himself has said words to that effect. So, mixed bag introduction to the range. But you know what, that really was my Doctor Who. That was the era that showed me just how creative this mad old show could be. And perhaps what it could be again.
0: But we're getting ahead of ourselves already. Back in June of 1991, standing in Sheraton Hughes Bookshop in Colchester... Gazing at the cover of the first book, Time Worm Genesis by John Peel, I had the sense that in print form the possibilities of Doctor Who were endless. Freed of BBC TV budgetary constraints, surely the books could do things so much better than the TV could. Peter, any thoughts? I think one of
2: the things that the New Adventures did or do better than the TV series is because they didn't have to cater to a wider audience because the target market was clearly readers who were already fans. It meant that the storylines could comfortably veer into more obscure avenues of continuity that you just couldn't imagine happening in the programme. Two excellent examples would be Well, can you imagine the TV series ever doing a multi-villain story featuring the meddling monk, the Vardens, and a chronovore in an uneasy alliance, as in No Future, or returning to the land of fiction, as in Conundrum? Another thing they do better than the TV series, and this is particularly evident when you compare them to the revival of Doctor Who on TV, is they are able to expand and develop the characters of the Doctor's companions. That was probably quite novel, in the 1990s and we've become familiar with that concept today however whereas the revival often in my opinion sacrifices the more interesting parts of the episode featuring the villains and aliens to focus on the human drama this doesn't happen in the new adventures and so the companions become strong characters in their own right while at the same time the writers are able to deliver strong storylines with some excellent villains and monsters
0: see what I mean exciting stuff. For some of us fans, the books were the creative high point of Doctor Who's 60-year run. For some of us, the Virgin era is our favorite era of Doctor Who.
3: I first read the Virgin New Adventures at a point in my life when I was probably a bit too young uh, to be doing it. And I started with Parasite, which was a really great start when you consider the content of the book and the fact that I was 12 or 13, probably even younger. I remember I was in primary school and my mother would not allow me to actually watch TV, so I compromised for getting my Doctor Who fix by just downloading all the books I could find off the internet and putting them onto my e-reader, and I kind of just blasted through. All of the V&Es because the Seventh Doctor was my favorite doctor. And I was then, as I am now, a firm believer in starting at the beginning and going all the way to the end of a series of uh, Doctor Who spin-offs. So, started at Time War Genesis, went all the way to Lung Bureau, took me probably a couple of months, if not a year. I read books so much faster back then. Where did all my energy go? I'll admit, a lot of it probably went over my head because I was, again, in primary school and a bit too young to actually understand a lot of the dark, edgy stuff that the v and are nowadays kind of known for. But, you know, even at that age, I could appreciate a good plot and good characters, so, yeah. And um, even coming back years later to do a reread, as I, I've done a couple, actually, since then. I like to go from the first book to the last book. Um... <laughs> When it comes to the v there's a lot of hit-and-miss hit stuff. Like, some of the books are objectively not that great, and there's a rare few that are truly brilliant. But, you know, I feel like it all balances out. I don't know, maybe I'm just biased because Kate Orman's books were the ones that got me into writing long-form fiction the first time, and now I write long-form fiction all the time. But, like, I've noticed that the v get... I mean, I guess they are a lot less popular in comparison to some of the other book ranges, I've noticed a lot of people don't like them quite as much. I've been online, I've seen the reviews, but, you know, when it comes to consuming media, sometimes it's just a case of you like what you like, and for some reason my brain seems to like the V&As quite a lot, uh, more than the EDAs, strangely, i found.
0: Thanks Kitty, and for the record, I don't think that's so strange at all. There were some great novels in the Virgin era, and some great writers.
4: Hi. Tristan from Western Australia here. Ian has very kindly asked me for uh, a few comments on uh, the new adventures, but he's also very cruelly asked me to comment on three of my favourite authors, which is a very difficult thing to do, considering there are so many authors of the range who are absolutely uh, phenomenal. I'm from Perth in Western Australia, and growing up, in the 1980s, we had Doctor Who on an endless loop on the ABC. Uh, they would always cycle over from the colour years. So um, although I was living in the era of uh, Peter Davison, Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy, um, we had a constant dive of John Perry and uh, Tom Baker. Doctor Who was, even though it was on TV almost every day, for me it was always more of a literary uh, concept. And the Target books were obviously uh, our main source, and they were easy to get hold of, whether it was that was in uh, school libraries, or we used to out and buy them uh, very cheap uh, from a uh, second-hand uh, bookstore that was very close to uh, my school. When um, The New Adventures starts in 91, I hit my teenage years, and Doctor Who was kind of uh, behind me. It was always something I was uh, fond of, but of course I became more interested in music and girls and good things to give me too as a teenager. Um, but then in 1995, I was uh, given a copy of a book uh, that my stepfather picked up for me, knowing that I had always loved Doctor Who. He had gone in and asked, what is the most recent Doctor Who book? And he brings home a copy of the New Adventures novel, Zampa, by Gareth Roberts, which I devoured, although I was very confused as to who these characters were. Obviously, there was someone in it I'd never heard of called Professor Bernice Summerfield, and we had two uh, adjudicators called Chris and Roz. Over the next couple of years, I was able to track down uh, an awful lot more of the New Adventures and then obviously later on the Missing Adventures, until one day when I had that magical moment that... uh, you can dream of when you're a collector when I went into a second-hand shop and I found about 20 issues of basically um, Time Worm all the way through and I was able to fill in all of the gaps and then from that moment on I was buying the new adventures and the missing adventures uh, as they were coming out on a monthly uh, basis. Tied into that is my teenage love affair with music, uh, particularly... uh, my two loves were either Jamaican Reggae or Britpop, which was very big on the scene and, and amongst all the friends that I I had. So for me, the new adventures are particularly tied up with the albums that were coming out by my favorite bands coming out of Britain. So you've got things like Blur, Suede, Sleeper and, and Pulp. And, and these are all very heavily for me connected uh, with the novels of the 1990s. So getting back to the subject of who my three favourite authors are, the ones that immediately come to mind are Paul Cornell, Kate Orman, and Lance Parkin. Um, There was always a feeling of whenever one of their new books was coming out, that this would be something big, it would be something epic, uh, something milestone. And as much as I loved um, the the sort of what you might call the in-between stories, the ones where there was a feeling of momentum of the the overall story of the Doctor and the Companions carrying on what you might call the tentpole stories there was always a very epic feel about those and so for me that is summarised by those three authors but I would also like to make obviously a call out to people like uh, Ben uh, Aronovich and uh, Andrew Cartmel in uh, particular and the world building that these authors were able to create especially when you consider how at the time they were also uh, young and many of them were first-time authors in their cases is absolutely astonishing and the the imagery and the emotion and the sentiment that i i get when i think about uh, these books even if we're talking ones that i may not have read for 20 something years um, is very uh, vivid and is very connected to The the emotion of the time, uh, the music that I was listening to, and my general feelings on uh, Doctor Who and the way that these authors were shaping and changing uh, the way that I looked on not just Doctor Who as it was then at the time, but also reflecting uh, on Doctor Who as it was um, in uh, the the old series. Um, And then how much of an impact this has had on the revived uh, series, you can see it, it's right there in the bones uh, day one with with Rose all the way through to uh, the present day as we're seeing now at the tail end of the, the Jodie Whittaker era. Um, these books have had a huge impact on the people who are running uh, Doctor Who uh, today, whether that be the TV iteration uh, the comics, the big finish ranges um, and the current novels um, and I don't think that can be underestimated and that is largely down to the creative efforts of some of my favorite uh, authors and i'm looking forward to talking more about this in uh, future episodes back to you ian hmm
0: oh no in the middle of eating a biscuit how great to hear from tristan and how lovely to get a little brit pop back in your ears once again mm. excuse me hmm it's a it's a sort of peanut brittle. It was a gift from my mother-in-law. Mm. One person who doesn't really like or understand music or people is Matty. Matty finds a lot of things difficult, but he's come here today to talk to us about the Doctor Who books, so let's listen to Matty. I hope he doesn't wee himself again.
5: Hi, this is Matt Barber from the Strangers in Space podcast. Um, I've once again been airlifted to rescue Ian Martin, um, who's obviously clearly struggling with a new podcast. So I've been brought in. Uh, presumably, I'm the only voice on this podcast. and I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. I'm, I'm happy to be airlifted in just to rescue it all. Um, so this new podcast is on the new adventures, eighth Doctor Adventures, Doctor Who novels, I guess. And Ian Martin's asked me a question, because um, I can't be trusted to come up with my own subject. And he asked the question, are they credible literature or a filthy, dirty, secret, guilty pleasure read? I don't think there's, those are the two poles of, of literature. I think things can exist halfway between the two. Um, but um, to appease in Martin's binary mind, Um, I'm happy to to think about it. First of all, I think the new adventures... Think about the new adventures. It's tempting to think of them as fan fiction. They're written by fans. They're based on the foundation of a series that has a strong fan base. But actually, I don't think they are fan fiction. I think many of them, possibly most of them, are actually genuine attempts by uh, talented... Early career or first-time novelists to express themselves, either using Doctor Who as the foundation for their stories or possibly twisting the concept, the whole idea of Doctor Who, uh, to fit something they they want to say. Um, I think I think the series is saved from being fan fiction, um, partly by the limitations of uh, the the rights that they have. So the fact that the BBC, possibly J&T, have imposed these kind of copyright restrictions, um, but also partly by the desire of these young, fresh authors to get their creative voices heard. Um, I think it's the series of books... And it is The New Adventures and The Eighth Doctor Adventures and The Past Doctor Adventures. I think... They were such a great launchpad, or or a rung up, for many writers who went on to have successful individual literary careers. Uh, I'm thinking Paul Cornell, um, Ben Rodenovich, Andrew Cartmel. Andrew Cartmel, Paul Cornell obviously had a role with the television series, but they've since become novelists and playwrights. But they're also a showcase for writers who should have gone on, I I think, to successful literary careers. I think Mark Platt's um, New Adventures are are rich and complex and sometimes indulgent, but then credible literature is sometimes indulgent. I think Lance Parkin's um, fiction, he's gone on to write lots of Doctor Who non-fiction and a biography of... a short biography of Alan Moore. But Lance Parkin's um, Doctor Who fiction was so emotionally rich um, and evocative. Beautiful stuff. Jim Mortimer, who wrote um, who wrote the, the, the novel that I'm immediately struggling to remember the name of. Blood Heat. Yeah, the, uh, the Silurian novel. It was called Blood um, Heat. Again again he he was able to kind of twist and and slightly corrupt the series. He wrote a novel that that felt felt less like Doctor Who Doctor Who and more like a kind of a an upside down version of Doctor Who, Doctor Who on the flip side. And then Lawrence Miles, who's since uh gone on to to be a bit of a controversial figure, but his Doctor Who fiction was so, so iconoclastic, so um, unusual, and all of these people, I think they should they should be authors. They're, the quality of their writing was was such that that they made the New Adventures credible literature. So, um, in conclusion, I don't think there's anything wrong with the Nick Briggs fetish of cleaving to the Doctor Who mythos. Um, But in the end, I think credible literature has to be something that stands on its own without the need of a 26-year-old television series to prop it up, and I think The New Adventures does just that. So thank you very
0: much, and goodbye. Matty there. Thank you, Matty. To be truly credible literature, of course, you need to marry really heightened, charged prose with a story people really want to read. Ideally, with evil baddies and terrible monsters
6: greetings greetings this is jason from the doctor who literature podcast you know last year i recorded a documentary about the first year of the new adventures over on trap one but even with that being done i find that i'm never finished talking about the na's i came to the na's at exactly the right time just 18 years old already a doctor who fan for seven full years In fact, I bought my first two new adventures, Time Worm Genesis and Time Worm Exodus, in 1991, from the very same bookstore where i bought my first Target novelizations all those years earlier. I hadn't read any Doctor Who fanfiction up to that point in my life, so Virgin Publishing fulfilled a need for me, getting to read new Doctor Who stories that were twice as long as the novelizations, well, three times as long in some cases, and getting to read not just new stories with new monsters and new villains, but also new stories returning favorite old monsters and villains. This was a generation before Big Finish, remember, and we didn't have a widespread commercial media outlet for these things, especially with Doctor Who off the air. So I love the originality of the N.A.s. From month to month, you never knew if you were going to get a story set in the past, present, or future, set on Earth, or in some distant galaxy, or a parallel universe, or alternate timeline. The N.A.s gave us a wide range of original enemies two of whom have been mentioned on TV in the new series, the Chelonians, Armored Turtle Warriors, and the Arbortides, who in slightly repurposed format menaced the Doctor and fellow English villagers of the year 1913 in Human Nature and the Family of Blood. But what most astounded me about the N.A.s at the time was that they brought back old enemies, but brought them back well to do original things. One of the very first books brought back the Warchief and a new generation of Warlords, but with a pretty horrific twist. David Banks, TV's Cyber Leader in the 1980s, gave us a thoughtful Cyberman invasion story, which owed a lot more to 1960's Jerry Davis and Derek Sherwin Doctor Who than it did to Banks' own time on the show, and it also was heavily based upon The Wizard of Oz, which is never a bad idea. While the books contractually could not feature the Daleks, they did spend a lot of time considering how the events of the Dalek invasion of Earth affected humanity in the 22nd century and beyond even importing a Dalek Hunter from the DWM comics. They created their own original continuity for the Ice Warriors, the Sontarans got a go courtesy of Terence Dix, who also brought back the vampires from State of Decay, and a highly original bit of fanfiction, fusion melded with Al Capone, Chicago, and the pulp of Raymond Chandler. In other books we met villainous Time Lords, and both of Kevin Stoney's memorable 1960's Doctor Who adversaries One as a surprise cameo, and the other as a full-on big bad, from a book set a thousand years after that character's first appearance. To this day, I still get a thrill when I look at my N.A. collection, remembering where I was when I opened the pages of a brand new book thirty years ago. The N.A.'s were truly too broad and too deep for the small screen, as the back cover promised, and they never stopped surprising me. I would say that I miss them, except that their legacy still lives on in the new series today. What do you say, RTD? Your first Doctor Who published work was a new adventure. Let's go back to the land of fiction, or let's revisit the meddling monk, both seen in multiple new adventures, and bring them back to a whole new generation of fans.
0: Thank you, Jason. You're listening to We're All Stories in the End, a podcast that's too broad and too deep to struggle back into those 28-inch waist trousers anymore. Now, it's worth pointing out that these books were divisive not everyone liked them certainly not at the time
7: so i've been asked to talk about my memories of the doctor new adventures okay well there's all the stuff the fans know even me i mean that infamous tagline "Stories too broad and deep for the small screen they were touted as an official continuation of the tv series The stories dealt with more adult themes they had more guns more violence even some sex and there were a breeding ground for authors who'd go on to write for the new series. You know, people like Mark Gatiss and Paul Cornell and, of course, Russell T Davis. And their importance can never be understated. I mean, after all, these books kept the Doctor Who flame alive through the wilderness years when it wasn't on the telly. They were a lifeline for fans. Some people may even have discovered Doctor Who just through these novels. Oh, and they gave us Bernice Summerfield and, by extension, Lisa Bowerman, which is reason enough to love them, if nothing else. And it's probably fair to say that if the new adventures hadn't come along when they did, Doctor Who'd just be some old show that had ended in the 80s and only people of a certain age like me remembered it. So I know about the new adventures, and I know now which ones are considered better than others. But for a personal history, well, not so much. You see, by the time the first books came out in 91, my own Doctor Who flame had just about died away. The show'd ended and my fandom just withered. It felt like something from my childhood, it just wasn't special anymore. And my life was also changing and I'd moved on to other interests, I'd moved out of my parents' home, and I thought I was an adult now. Yeah, right. And earlier in that year I'd even got rid of all my Target novels to a charity shop. So while I think I bought the first couple of new adventures, probably out of curiosity more than anything else, that's as far as it went. Nothing more. I wasn't interested, I'd never found out how the Time Worm story ended. And it didn't matter. Or so I thought. The thing is, all these years later I now do have a full set of the new adventures. You see, my fandom reignited itself, like many others, around 2004 when the new series was first announced. And I decided to start building a collection a few years later. And it took a long time. I mean, I only got the last one just before the pandemic here. So they're sitting here on my shelf right next to me now. But it's embarrassing to admit, I still not read them. Oh, I keep meaning to, but there's always something getting in the way. You know what life's like. Don't they say starting something's the hardest part? I need a bit of a push. Just maybe this podcast is the thing to do it. I hope so.
0: I suppose we can't go much further without mentioning Professor Bernice Summerfield, as Kevin touched on. The first companion specifically created for the Virgin New Adventures, a professor of archaeology who liked to drink and kept her tongue firmly lodged in her cheek. Of course she's the basis for Professor Riversong. Bernice Summerfield is a lot of people's favourite companion from the wilderness years. Not everyone's, of course.
8: I think it's fair to say... When she first arrived as a character, I didn't entirely trust Professor Bernice Summerfield. I was eight years old when I'd first met Ace, and had decided even at that age she was a welcome departure from Mel, who screamed too much and wore leg warmers. For the next few years, the Doctor and Ace were my TARDIS team, and, after the cancellation in 1989, I looked forward to continuing to read about them in the new adventures. The hip young gunslingers at Virgin Publishing, though, clearly had ideas of where to take the Doctor and Ace. He became more brooding, more manipulative. She was also prone to brooding, but had also become more unstable. They were being pushed to breaking point. That point came in Benice's debut story, Paul Cannell's novel Love and War. I'd probably seen a preview of Benice in Doctor Who magazine, and to 13-year-old me, the alarm bells had started ringing. She was apparently a companion who was going to swear, going to drink, she wore big earrings and an orange hoodie. An improvement on leg warmers, but no bomber jacket. In short, I was a 13-year-old geek, confronted with a companion who to me felt very on-trend. She didn't seem like the sort of companion you would get in the TV series. This was an attempt at maturity and sophistication, but even then, it felt like Bernice was at best a wish list of ideas for a companion or at worst, the writers of the new adventures, projecting aspects of themselves into the stories. Of course, I later realised that a 26th century space archaeologist was a great idea for a companion. They would be knowledgeable about alien races, able to not constantly have to ask the Doctor, what's that?, and have perspectives on the past, present and future, useful for time travel stories. In fact, Bernice Summerfield is an idea so good she's recreated as Professor River Song for the series four-story Silence in the Library Forest of the Dead and later, thanks to the magic of Big Finish, appear together in the 2019 story The Legacy of Time where they open an ancient tomb and are confronted by ghosts, proper Indiana Jones space archaeology. Over the years I came to appreciate Benice a lot more and enjoyed a few of her standalone novels too. Dry Pilgrimage, Nick Walters and Paul Leonard's book about Benny having to be teetotal and ending up in a wheelchair, I remember was a favourite. But ask me today what I remember about Bernice Summerfield, and well, I get that same brief gut reaction I did when I was 13. Who is this woman? As fans, we were lucky. We had plenty of opportunity to find out.
0: Thanks to John Rivers there. By the time Benny came along, the Virgin Books were starting to become their own thing. Some fans were increasingly unconvinced about the direction the range was taking.
9: My name's Gareth, and I like Doctor Who and The New Adventures, but I didn't, to start with. So when I was a kid, it was the 90s, and that was the wilderness years. Uh, That was when there was no Doctor Who. Even though there was loads of stuff, right? So we had loads and loads of videos, we had tonnes of non-fiction books, uh, stuff like the handbooks and the yearbooks and things, and all of that was, like, received wisdom. So you'd hear the evil of the Daleks is really good. The Horns of Nine one is really rubbish. And I remember just pouring through this stuff and just absorbing all of this stuff about Doctor Who. Most of it, like about the 60s and 70s. And I didn't read the new adventures right away. So I remember I picked one up. It was probably a family member got it for me. They're like, oh, you like Doctor Who. Here you go. So they gave me Death and Diplomacy, which has on the cover Bernie Summerfield and Jason. Two characters, obviously, I had no idea who they were. The logo was the McCoy one. I really didn't like recognised that one at the time and the whole book kind of did not look like Doctor Who and of course that's sort of what they were going for isn't it so they were like oh this is a bit more adult this is a bit more out there so I remember I started reading it really uncertain there's a bit quite early on where Bernie Summerfield again a character I've got no idea who she is lands naked just like teleports in a load of mud and I remember thinking as a kid oh this isn't my kind of thing (laughs) so I put it to one side and basically didn't go near them again for years right i just thought they sound like they're trying a bit too hard they're a bit too kind of adult and weird and you know my doctor who's like oh tom baker running down the corridor again i was a kid so i absorbed all of this stuff so eventually big finish do love and war the adaptation of paul cornell's book and it was great and it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger so ace kind of goes off into the wilderness and you're like what's going to happen there so i really wanted to know what happens next unfortunately big finish adapted those kind of in a random order So they weren't going to tell us what happens next. So the only alternative was to read all of the new adventures books because Doctor Who fans are completists. So that's what I did. I tracked down 61 books, most of them via eBay. That hurt. Um, And yeah, the result was they weren't like I thought they were. The reputation I'd picked up from them anyway, that they were really in your face and violent and sort of sex and swearing and all of that, was not completely wrong, but that's not what they're like. So the stories were as good or bad as any Doctor Who. So you had... Like really satisfying ones like Exodus, which is what if the Nazis won the war, and Time, uh, Time Worm Revelation, which is very, very new who in what it's like, you know, the, the imagery of that. You've got loads of world building stuff like Lucifer Rising and the Also People, and really, really funny books as well. Uh, stuff like Conundrum is just hilarious. Um, and all through this, you know, the characterization is incredible, and the Doctor in those books, is just the most rounded version of the Doctor I'd ever come across. And so by the time you get to Lungbarrow, assuming you can get there, he's like the most Doctor, Doctor. So by the end of it, even though I didn't want to read them, it was my favourite era. I think that's true, I think that's my favourite era.
0: You and me both, Gareth. The reputation the New Adventures were developing was for hard science fiction, set in the future, full of swearing and sex, serious and grim. But is this a fair assessment? Were the New Adventures just too damn gum?
10: As someone who was a teenager and active member of fandom for the period of the Virgin New Adventures, I have to say we did debate these books with the full passion and ferocity with which fandom now debates the new series television episodes. And in that time, I must confess, I never heard at the time of the gun v frock debate. Now, I'm not sure whether that was because that debate was a particularly English debate, or it's one that has come along later on in fandom. Uh, I was very aware, of course, of the rad v trad debate, and I think they are very different things. I can think of radical New Adventure novels that were both gun and frock, and traditional ones that were both gun and frock. I have to say that as the new adventures were very, very keen to lean into the more grown-up and more adult environment, whilst often being written by new authors in their 20s, it lent into the gun part of Doctor Who very, very much. These were books that wanted to be very, very serious, read by fans who thought of themselves as very, very serious people, and, of course, who were growing up with the books, unencumbered of the need to get younger fans watching the show anymore, there was no need to have the lighter and fluffier stuff to keep the children involved. This was perhaps a mistake, and one of the reasons why The Virgin New Adventures is looked back on as this very serious, very gun set of books. But it's where fandom was at the time. We were sticking around with the show after it had been off the air for some years. We, of course were the most fanatical of fans. I would say later on, though, The New Adventures did find their inner frock in a very serious way, and it often was the more radical authors, perhaps the more self-assured authors, who did lean into the frock. I think that Paul Cornell's Happy Endings absolutely is an indulgently frock novel and more the fun for it. I think the frockiest of frock novels is by Kate Orman, one of the most radical of New Adventure authors, and she did Return of the Living Dad. Surely any book that centres around a nestine living spatula has to be considered frock. At the other end of the gun debate, we have got stuff like Blood Heat and Deceit, which are all about guns and are all very good books. But I do think many of the best New Adventures are the ones that find the balance between the frock and the gun. Terrence Dix, again, perhaps because he is such an assured and experienced writer, steeped in both traditions of Doctor Who, particularly in the Perley era, which was peak frock and peak gun in many ways, is able to do books like Blood Harvest and Shakedown, which are serious, have military, have guns, but at the same time you have bizarre Irish Chicago policemen and augmented Ogron security officers, having a little bit of fun with the process. In addition, one of my favourite New Adventures, and perhaps one of the most underrated and underappreciated of them, is Bad Therapy by Matthew Jones, which, although a very bleak book, does balance the gun and the frock in very different ways, and indeed balances the rat and the train in very different ways, and is perhaps in that way the spiritual centre point of the Virgin New Adventures. Were the New Adventures more gun than frock? Absolutely. Was that where fandom was at the time? Unquestionably. But is there frock in there? Indeed there is.
0: That was David Kitchen. Here to tell us about another controversial aspect of the books is Andy Moore.
11: When a renowned author, Bon viveur, and semi-professional wrestler Ian Martin first asked me to address you all for about three minutes on the cover art of the New Adventures and the EDAs, my first thought was, why me? I'm a musician, allegedly, not an artist. An artiste? Yes, I know I'm an artiste, because it's often written on the doors of the lung-bothering, black-mould-infested rooms backstage at workingmen's clubs, where I sit and wait patiently to interrupt the main events of the bingo and the meat raffle with pesky music. Three half-hours in encores, alright lads, smashing. In short, I don't know Art, but I know he was better when he was stood next to Paul Simon. Don't at me with your bright eyes. Just don't. I hate those furry little bastards. I'd like to apologise to Wombling Mike Bat, writer of Bright Eyes, and all-round musical genius at this point. I'd like to, but I won't until he apologises for Katie Mellower. Seriously, though. Fantastic orchestral arrangements on XTC's Apple Venus, Mike. How many minutes is that now? Oh, shit. The first NA cover art I encountered was for Time Worm Exodus in WH Smith's in Harrow. The town, that is, not the school. Although, they've probably got their own golden, encrusted branch adjacent to the quad. Cumberbatch, pop down to Smith's and fetch me my copy of the Beano, would you? Well, but first, bend over, I have some crumpets that need toasting. This was some months after its release, at a point where I'd fallen out of love with Doctor Who, having become busy with work and awaiting the birth of my first child. She's 30 in July. 30! And aside, uh, at one point she managed to escape from her cot and crawl over to the side of the bed where I'd fallen asleep and dropped my copy of Transit on the floor. She then proceeded to gnaw right through it with her new teeth, which means that to this day, I've only ever read 97% of Transit, the remaining 3% having passed its way through a digestive system years ago. I'd like to tell you that it was the cover art of Time Wham! Exodus! that uh, first caught my attention. Perhaps the Doctor Who logo, or the ornate dagger partially obscuring a swastika, or the figure that was almost but not entirely unlike Sophie Aldred. But as Mrs Merton once said to me, tell me, Andy Mar, what was it that first attracted you to the book written by a prolific Doctor Who author Terence Dix? I'm a child of the Target novelizations, you see. Like many people, they made me a fan of who more than the TV series, with their, in many cases, downright slutty covers. Clap, 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 clap. Well, this is not to say that the Naedas didn't have slutty covers in their own right, but if I'm honest, I'm easy for a police box in an interesting setting. Blood Heat ticks all the boxes there, though, with its Silurian on the back of a T-Rex in a jungled-up London, and a cheeky bit of TARDIS peeking out.
1: Oh, Matron, your police box is showing.
11: Who am I to judge such things, but I often found the covers of the NAs a bit unengaging. I'm a gentleman though and so I'll name no names. Often the covers were top pieces of art in their own right when they didn't just rely on showing Ace, or Ace holding a very big gun. I'm gonna rely on memory here rather than just go back and look at them all as that's probably a better indication of their lasting impact. Plus, it's early and I've got shit to do. Here are some of my favorites as I recall them. The aforementioned Blood Heat, Blood Harvest. No, they don't all have blood in the title. Birthright, all-consuming fire, the also people, damaged goods, so vile a sin, other covers aren't available. The EDAs for me had a more consistent style across the range, often choosing to zoom in on a strong image, like an eye in Seeing Eye, or an eye in The Year of Intelligent Tigers, or an eye in The Scarlet Empress, etc. That old seal of Raslon makes a few appearances too. I don't know what side the majority of fandom falls on this, and it may be blessed for me, but I'd say for me personally the BBC Books covers worked better on the whole. Plus, they had the cover to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, one cover to rule them all. For those who haven't seen it, I won't describe it, but I strongly suggest you nip online and have a gander's at its bonkers glory.
3: Exquisite. Absolutely exquisite.
11: So what have we learnt here today about the cover art of the Njeaders? Chiefly, that getting me to talk about it is a fool's errand, and that perhaps your three minutes-ish may have been better spent listening to Bright Eyes. In
0: 1996, the BBC tried to bring Doctor Who back to TV, with a movie starring Paul McGann as the Eighth Doctor. Doctor. The movie wasn't enough of a ratings winner in the USA to lead to a new series, but the BBC decided to bring the idea for original fiction back in house anyway. In 1997 then, the Virgin Era came to an end and the BBC Eighth Doctor Adventures began. Immediately a lot of New Adventure fans felt that the first few BBC books weren't very good at all and promptly abandoned the new series. But some people would argue that the ETAs just needed time to bed down, and that great
12: things lay ahead for Doctor Number 8. The 8th Doctor was my Doctor Who from, like, 1999 till the return of the show. And it did a lot of good things right, and did a, lot, did a handful of things that I think were wrong. I think one thing it did incredibly right was its characterization of the Eighth Doctor. And um, he had a journey through the series of novels. The of biggest things happened. The Faction Paradox arc, uh, the Marooned on Earth with no memory, and the TARDIS rebuilding arc. Um, but he was consistent. I heard Paul McGann in my head. I think um, pre-Big Finish and I don't think that this doctor is the doctor in the novels any different than the doctor I hear in Big Finish, or and uh, anything he's done since. The actor has done since, and Big Finish has done since. But I hear Paul McGann's voice. I he and I see a consistency, or read a consistency into it. That's me, and I think that worked really well. And I think um, the companions they created: Sam, Fritz, Compassion, Trixie, Ange. Uh, All of those, I enjoyed all of their arcs, some more than others. Fritz is one of my favorite companions of all time. I thought he was a great character, um, and I really liked it. I preferred him with Ange. I liked Ange a bit, Angie. Uh, And I liked Compassion, the living TARDIS. I thought that was great. Some of the things I think it got wrong were the same things that I think they got right. Um, I love the Faction Paradox arc. I love the Marooned on Earth arc. Um, it is all that that kind of high end ish science fiction that I enjoy as a reader, um, and especially the timey wimey and weird things the the faction paradox hiding in the twelve days of the uh, removed from the Julian calendar when we went to the Gregorian calendar. Uh, to me, that was just genius. Um, and it was stuff that they could never have pulled off in TV, um, and that was the thing. Is some of these stories because you get a little, I got to add my imagination. I could take what world building, and there was some incredible world building, and add to it. I got to put the flourishes in it, um, and that was great. And I also like the some of the historical meetings. He meets Noel Coward, Graham Greene, Alan Turing. All of that just blows my mind. Amazing. Some of the things I don't like is when a bad book was bad, it was bad. Um, there was sometimes an inconsistency from one novel to the next, depending on the writer. And a lot of that may have just been personal preference to me. But that's that. I love Lawrence Miles. Um, um, I, Paul Cornell has a great book in there. They're just, It's a wide variety of writers. It, Was great, but it also meant a wide variety in um, quality sometimes. Um, And, like, I'm not a big fan of the first The Eighth Doctor book. It was, it's Uncle Terrence, but it was pretty pat. The John Peel books are a little heavy handed, but I think they work past it and get into some great stuff. But overall, I love The Eighth Doctor books. They all were my Doctor Who for almost eight years, nine years. Um, and uh, I don't have the books now, I, um, but they're always in my head. It is my can it, I wedged it into my head canon. A new Doctor, in a new series
0: of books, needed new companions to join him on new adventures. And it feels as if the Eighth Doctor got through a lot of companions in the
13: EDAs. So I think for me the ultimate um, Eighth Doctor Adventures companion is actually the uh, the original, which is Sam. Uh, Sam Jones. Now, she got quite a lot of criticism uh, at the time uh, that the books were coming out, um, that she was, you know, kind of a bit self-involved and and moody and and this, that and the other. There was was quite a lot of pushback against her, I seem to remember, from from the fans. I think they're being used to um, characters like Bernice that were quite mature, so having someone young um, and teenage with all those insecurities, Um, maybe just didn't resonate but actually for me at the time I was kind of 14 when those books started coming out Um, and sort of reading about Sam's sort of teenage turmoils and and growing up and crush on the Doctor and you know not kind of understanding a lot of the things that were happening she just felt like a really rounded and and realistic character to me Um, she was a great companion um, and went through a lot of development as well I mean, the the sequence of books um, kind of Dreamstone Moon and, and um, you know, the, the ones where she was missing uh, the Doctor and they were separated you know, she got a lot of a lot of good strong character development there um, and then of course in the Interference, they actually you know, had a meeting, Sarah Jane Smith, and and kind of understanding what life after the Doctor would be like, um, and that's kind of something that you know Russell T Davis then then used when he brought Sarah Jane back in the in the series itself, um, and gave Rose Tyler quite a similar sort of conversation and a similar kind of dynamic and relationship. Uh, my second favorite um, companion. Uh, is the second. It uh, seemed to be running through them in order, but uh, Fitz, I just thought, was brilliant. Um, you know, he had this kind of personality. Uh, when he arrived, he changed the dynamic of the TARDIS team. Um, it had a kind of Dr. Tegan Turlow sort of vibe to it, or Dr. Jamie and Zoe. Um, <coughs> you know, there was suddenly this, this new character there who was a lot of fun to explore. Um, and actually, the things that happened to him were quite harrowing. Um, so, you know, if you look at him basically becoming a clone halfway through his run, but then his original self going on to become Grandfather Paradox. Spoilers, sorry. It's <laughs> um, some really kind of mature storytelling um, that went on there with the character of, of Fitz um, and really kind of put through the mill, and I enjoyed that. And I enjoyed what they did. Um, and then I think kind of from a, an element of interest I really enjoyed Compassion um, as a character. I know she wasn't around for that long, um, but this idea that they had of these sentient TARDISes, and I really like this Eighth Doctor Adventures vision of future Gallifrey, which, of course, is destined to, to never come to pass, um, because the Time War and Russell T. Davis's developments have kind of negated all of that, but this kind of far-future Gallifrey with um, you know sentient TARDISes Um, i I find really fascinating and compassion is obviously a huge part of that and i also kind of enjoyed trying to imagine what her tardis interior would look like and how it would work the doctor um, getting in and out of compassion and and so forth so on and so forth when he was using her um, in place of his own tardis so yeah those are my three um, favorite companions from the eighth doctor adventures from that range of books
0: Thanks, Andrew. It sounds like we need to hear a little bit more about this Faction Paradox business. Rob Irwin is required.
14: Hey everyone, it's Rob from the Doctor Who show here, and my favourite arc in the Eighth Doctor Adventures, if you can call it an arc for reasons we'll get to, are the Faction Paradox stories. Alien Bodies, Interference Book 1, Interference Book 2, all by Lawrence Miles deal with the idea of paradoxes and a character called Grandfather Paradox via stories of, well, a cult of time-travelling voodoo terrorists. Are you intrigued? When I first read The Eighth Doctor Adventures back in the late 1990s, it was these stories that really drew me into the series. Alien Bodies happens a mere six books into the series. They blew me away and made me think, Simultaneously, A. You can't do that in Doctor Who And B. That was the best Doctor Who novel I've ever read For alien bodies, imagine a tale where the Doctor gets caught up in a strange auction for a relic A relic which turns out to be his own corpse from the future Faction Paradox wants it, the Time Lords want it, other parties want it So yeah this isn't just turning up somewhere in the afternoon having a run around and then setting sail a few hours later for the doctor this is big stuff things get even weirder in interference books one and two where we're now 25 books into the series we're saying goodbye to sam we're killing the third doctor wait what (laughs) yes folks and that's just the headlines. I could sit here for half an hour and try and describe Interference Books 1 and 2 to you and probably not cover half of it and still confuse myself in the process. Now, I called these stories an arc of sorts earlier and I wanted to talk about that a bit more here. It's because as time went on and Miles dropped away from writing Doctor Who at all, concepts that had been raised in his novels were picked up other writers and not always in ways that he approved of. In an interview from around 2001, Miles commented specifically on the use of Grandfather Paradox in the 36th 8th Doctor adventure, The Ancestor Cell. Quote, He's like the Doctor's name or Judge Dredd's face. He's one of those things that instantly loses its value as soon as you even think about revealing it. And he certainly isn't the Doctor, Which the Ancestor Cell suggests I never envisaged or envisioned him physically When I was writing any of the books End quote So to me there's certainly a faction paradox arc In the Eighth Doctor Adventures And I'm here for it But at the same time It's not really how it would have played out I believe if Miles had been more involved with the series And written more novels For people who do get into Faction Paradox, however, there were some novels, short stories, audios, and even an ill-fated comic book about the group. Obviously without Doctor Who content, for obvious reasons, which were put out under a variety of publishers for about a decade or so, before even Miles walked away from it all. So there is more content out there on Faction Paradox if you want it. All told, I find Faction Paradox a uh, frustrating, brilliant experience. Whether you're following it through the Eighth Doctor Adventures alone, or whether you've read some of the uh, new adventures where there are there are some seeds of Faction Paradox sort of sown in there in some of the later books, or whether you're using it as a springboard to go further afield into the the novels and and standalone content that came out later. Hands down, I think it's the most interesting thing to happen in the Eighth Doctor novels, full stop.
0: But we're getting ahead of ourselves again. The Eighth Doctor faces many story arcs, but so did the Seventh. Some fans love the Virgin New Adventures, some prefer the EDAs. One thing we can all agree on is that we've all got some great memories of some of these novels. Like DK.
15: I'm going to start with... Uh, the Virgin New Adventures Nightshade by Mark Gatiss. Beautiful cover, uh, but it's not just about the cover, obviously. But I honestly think this is a beautifully written, haunting tale uh, featuring the obviously, obviously the substitute doctor character Trevithick. The monsters are fantastic. The location where it's set, it, it leads to a very haunting, very atmospheric and emotional journey, especially when you consider the relationship between the seventh Doctor and Ace and how it begins to break down in this book, well, following on from Love and War. I think it's done really well and wouldn't hesitate to recommend that to anyone to start off with. You don't need to know a great deal about the uh, the range up until that point, but it is extremely well done. The second book on my list I'm gonna go for Happy Endings by Paul Cornell. Now, it's not the most critically acclaimed book in the range. Uh, It's when the book, I think, underwent a rebranding prior to it having the license taken away from it. But it was released at a time when uh, Hype for Doctor Who was at a fever pitch with the 96 McGann movie on its way in. And I absolutely love this book. It's just... It's fun more than anything. Uh, Lots of characters Lots of situations, lots of fun, you know, slightly interactive parts, what with the uh, the Bernice wedding poster and things like that, but yeah, I have great memories of this one. I was actually in London at that point to attend the BAFTA screening of the TV movie and managed to find this in Waterstones, and I think it was maybe about a week before it was actually due for official release, but I snapped it up, and I, I think I went through it in about one night, I, I, I just think it's great fun. After Dying Days, obviously, Virgin had their license taken away and it went to the BBC and their first book, I believe, was The Eight Doctors by Terence Dix. And coming from Dying Days to Eight Doctors, it felt like such a step down. It it really didn't hold much promise. Now, the following adventures from that, things like Body Snatchers, Vampire Science, uh, Genocide, decent enough. I mean, I really enjoyed Vampire Science, but uh, they were very run of the mill. I believe Alien Bodies was the first title to expand the uh, the range and start to deliver on the same kind of scope that the Virgin New Adventures and done uh, using the the doctor's body as a weapon and the fact that the, you know everyone's bidding for it it reintroduced the crotons in a surprising twist and actually made them seem very threatening I think it's a really good book and it as I say, it expanded the scope of what, until that point, the eight Doctor adventures were with the BBC range. And obviously, led to bigger and better things with the in- interference and the, uh, the Gallifrey war arc. So, yep, those are my three for the moment.
0: So, everyone has their favourites, and usually they are Nightshade, Human Nature, and Alien Bodies. But the New Adventures and the EDAs would produce more average books than classics and not every idea for an arc or a Companion seemed to work. For everyone. Here's Ian McIntyre with his three least successful Companions from the combined series of books. In our number three slot we have Samantha Jones,
16: first introduced in the EDA's inaugural volume The Eight Doctors. Created by Terence Dix as the ideal companion to squire for the Eighth Doctor, it's telling that Dix originally intended for Sam to be part of a trio of new companions, alongside two of her teachers from Coal Hill School, which can be uncharitably interpreted as an attempt to fall back on the very first Doctor-Companion dynamic, without bothering to question whether it was in need of any modernization. Subsequent authors of the BBC novels pretty quickly recognized that Sam, as she was originally conceived, wasn't the most interesting character to write for, and soon began overhauling her character. First, by suggesting that her history had been rewritten by forces unknown to make her a more ideal companion to the Doctor, and then by stranding her on the colony world of Ha'olam for three years to give her a little more character development. Best novel, Unnatural History. Worst novel, The Eight Doctors. The second least successful companion of the EDAs and NAs is Trix McMillan, first introduced in Time Zero. From the other end of the Eighth Doctor Adventures, we have Trix, who might qualify as the Swiss Army Knife of Companions. Unfortunately, not in a good way. Her skill set, goals, and backstory are completely up for grabs, and thus can be just about whatever a given author needs them to be in order to make their particular novel work. Which, one can argue, makes her successful, but only on the level of plot utility. Indeed, during the first third or so of her tenure aboard the TARDIS, she is only seen to be sneaking around in the background without the rest of the TARDIS crew ostensibly even aware that she's aboard. It probably doesn't help that her name is rather shamelessly ripped off from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Best novel, The Gallifrey Chronicles. Worst novel, The Last Resort. Finally, the least successful Doctor Who novel companion, as determined by a rigorous statistical inquiry of myself, must be Walsey the Cat, first introduced in human nature. It might be a little unfair to hold a cat to the same standards as human, or human analog, companions, but Wolsey wound up being the New Adventures version of Chameleon, introduced because the creative team thought it might be a neat idea, then promptly forgotten about until it was time for them to depart. A few years previously, Andrew Cartnell had introduced a proof-of-concept cat in the TARDIS in the form of Chick in the novel Warlock, but no subsequent author, including Paul Cornell, Wolsey's creator, Bother delving any further into this idea with Wolsey, although Wolsey would eventually get a new lease on life breathed into him by being adopted by Bernice Summerfield when she departed for Della, he must ultimately be considered the least successful companion of the interregnum novels. Best novel, Human Nature; worst novel, God Engine, which is to Wolsey what Frontios
0: is to Chameleon. You see, you can't put two Doctor Who fans in a room together and get them to agree on anything. I myself would quite happily take Wolsey over anything Sam Jones ever did. But that's just me. And we're running out of time. The library want to close and I want my dinner. So to round things out, let's have a little chat with me old mate Dylan. Dylan, let's finish on a high. Tell us, which books are the most fun?
17: I grew up in the 90s. And as a child I wasn't the strongest of readers so the New Adventures and the Eighth Doctor Adventures weren't really accessible to me as I grew older and became a stronger reader I did however jump back into them so it was probably around my late teens and early 20s that I first got into the New Adventures and the Eighth Doctor Adventures improper I'm not a completist I haven't read all of them but I've read a sizable bunch and enjoyed them a lot however you pose to me the question, what are the most fun Doctor Who books from those ranges and what are the most fun authors? Well I mean that depends on what you define as fun. The sort of Doctor Who that I liked back then and the sort of Doctor Who I like now are very very different. As a late teen early 20s person I wanted my Doctor Who to be serious, to be full of horror, and terror, and big sci-fi ideas, and rammed full of continuity. So the enjoyment I got from them and the fun wasn't necessarily things like Gareth Roberts and Mark Gatiss doing some slightly whimsical prose that are, you know, a bit fan-wanky, but also a rollicking good old adventure story. The fun that I got from them was seeing the Draconians, the Silurians, the Cybermen, the Meddling Monk unit, that sort of thing. I, I, was, I was drenched, I was knee-deep in fan-lore. So, things like Lung Barrow, which has been hailed as a classic and pulled apart as a travesty on many, many occasions. That was fun for me, hearing all about the Doctor's backstory, which I imagine the TV series would never do now. Anyway, so things like Lung Barrow, even things like No Future, but give me the Vardans and the Meddling Monk any fucking time. Terence Dix brings back the Warchief and the Warlords in Exodus, which is an amazing story when you are 18. We get Romana and the Great Vampires in Blood Harvest. Apparently I'm just big into Terence Dix here and then in the 8th Doctor range I loved Vampire Science at the time because that felt like proper serious grown up Doctor Who to me and that was the fun that I kind of pulled from it and the Body Snatchers because we got Lightfoot, did we get Jago as well? I can't remember I think it was Jago and Lightfoot, or maybe just Lightfoot, and the Zygons. And we heard about Milking scarisons for the first time. And if that isn't fun, I don't know what is. And then finally, after them not appearing for ages, we got War of the Daleks by John Peel. An absolute cavalcade of bullshit fanwank, but so much fun for 20-year-old Dylan. And if all that wasn't enough, we then got Legacy of the Dalek. Susan, the Master, more fan wank. Absolutely brilliant stuff. This was the sort of stuff that I loved and enjoyed about these ranges. So did I answer the question you sent to me? Probably not, but there we go. And also, just so you know, when you do invite me on for a proper episode, I will make you sit down and read The Eight Doctors. I won't, don't worry, I won't do that to you. But
0: Dylan, that's how We're All Stories in the End is going to work. Every month we're going to be reviewing one of these books, and that, for me at least, is going to involve rereading it, or in some cases reading it for the first time. I read all the Virgin New Adventures, I've read about half of the Eighth Doctor books, so there's plenty of discovery, not just for me, but hopefully for all of you as well. In the first episode of the show, we're going to be talking to Ross about the Eighth Doctor book, alien bodies by lance miles you've already heard quite a bit about it uh it's one of the most controversial and infamous of the books in both ranges and that's an excellent place for us to start if you are able to read the book in time for the podcast that would be great we'd create more of a book club kind of vibe if everyone was reading along with us Uh, If you don't have alien bodies, it's only about £250 on eBay. So um, grab yourself a copy, never mind the heating bills or food, um, and read along with us. We'll be back in a few weeks with that first episode. Until then, uh, you have been very kind for listening, and I have been wanging on about Doctor Who books. Take care, everyone, and see you next month. We're all stories in the end, was written and presented by a hugely talented gang of people, but there's too many names to fit over this rather excellent remix of the Doctor Who theme, which was very generously donated to us by Simon Brett. Please subscribe to the show, and then you won't miss a single episode. Take care, see you soon.